The wind raises electric, and the promise of rain hangs heavy in the air. Take off your shoes and curl up in your chair, because tonight we delve deeper into the world of Cranston Walker. Cranston is a millionaire playboy who has taken a leave of absence from the high left to serve as guardian to a forward-thinking woman in a backwards-thinking world. The job has proven more than Cranston bargained for already, and the plot is only getting thicker. So, turn down the lights and pour yourself a drink, because it's time for Neon Jezebel. Hello, friends. We will return to this exciting episode of Neon Jezebel in just a moment. But first, a word from Baby Blue Manatorine Cigarettes. Extra-dimensional pockets are the public safety scourge of our age. Areas of friction between our fourth-dimensional space and fifth-dimensional space can appear anywhere and at any moment. If one appears near you, it could have extremely detrimental effects to your psychological health. There's only one way to protect yourself from the adverse effects of extra-dimensional exposure, and that's Manatorine. Manatorine is FDA-approved to combat the psychological toll extra-dimensional pockets can have on a person. Lighting up a Manatorine cigarette while in the vicinity of one such pocket can save you weeks, months, or even years of psychological distress. Baby Blue Manatorine cigarettes are wrapped in our patented Baby Blue fast-catching paper. No cigarette paper in the world lights as quickly or reliably as Baby Blue's. Baby Blue fast-catching paper not only lights faster, but it burns hotter, too. Each strip of Baby Blue fast-catching paper is treated with a special and entirely safe chemical compound that increases the normal temperature of a lit cigarette, which means the manatorine inside oxidizes faster and gives you a stronger dose of manatorine than any other product on the market. Nothing is faster, and nothing is safer when it comes to extra-dimensional pockets. Get the relief and protection you need right when you need it with Baby Blue Fast-Catching Paper, found only in Baby Blue Manatorian Cigarettes. That's Baby Blue. Ask for it by name. And now, back to the program. My dearest, darlingest little brother, I have decided that I'm going to have the words ambitious minx embroidered onto a sash that I can wear to cocktail parties. It sounds like just the accessory I need for next season. Speaking of accessories, you will find Father's sword cane in the box this letter arrived with. Knowing you, Cranston, you received the package an hour ago. Immediately open the box and have been doing lunges and parries in the nearest available sitting room. Only now that you've nearly broken a sweat are you reading the correspondence from your beloved and beleaguered sister. 
You are quite ungrateful, you know. I also included Father's old hood, just in case you decided to employ the full vigilance committee kit. It will gratify you to know that you were right. The company is in much more capable hands with me at the helm than you. In fact, this little foray of yours might be the best thing that's ever happened to the company. I thank you. The shareholders thank you. And Mrs. Cote thanks you. Since you've been gone, not one secretary has shown up for work with a hangover. And our dear head of the Steno Pool hasn't found a new gray hair in a week. Now that the formalities are out of the way, do tell me more about this bodyguarding business you're into. It sounds positively thrilling. I had Lucy run out and get me a copy of your Rosamund's book. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but some of the girls in the Steno Pool have, and, according to Lucy, just reading some of the advice therein put more sweat under her collar than her last three dates combined which is saying something coming from Lucy. Pretty girl like her. You'd think men would put in some real effort. Then again, a girl can only be swept off her feet so many times before she starts thinking she can fly. At any rate, I look forward to reading it. Now, Cranston, your Rosamond Syme wouldn't happen to be any relation of the Boston Symes, would she? If she is, there might be more to this attempted kidnapping business than the perpetually bruised ego of the patriarchy. There's a fellow running for a Senate seat in Massachusetts by the name of Henry Syme. I met him some years ago when Father and I were summering in Nantucket. Quite the chameleon, that one. As I recall, he initially struck me as the kind of man who regards the consumption of soda water as a moral failing. Yet, once we got him on the right subject, I half expected him to produce a snuffbox. He was quite the racing hound once the proper rabbit was loosed. Father disapproved of him as he's a socialist, but he also had some unkind things to say about Trotsky. So, who knows? Anyway, I've kept in touch with his daughter, all girls together and that, and he's been moving up in the world. A kidnapping might be a bit much for a senatorial race, even if socialists are involved, but I know Henry has a brother, Benjamin, and Benjamin is supposedly a member of the OFF. Perhaps the whole family is. There are rumors that the OFF and the Red Silk Society have been mutually plotting against each other. Mind you, Militarizing a church group isn't the modus operandi of the Red Silks, but I wouldn't put it past them to find some anti-social Protestants and set them up for a fall. Could be they're trying to kill two birds with one stone. You really should write to the Chamberlain. It would look bad if it were left to me to explain your absence at the next club meeting. And someone in the library might know more about the signs. Gather intelligence while ye may. Now, as for company business, things are going swimmingly, and not only because none of the secretaries have needed a Bloody Mary and an aspirinol. I met with the gentlemen from the St. Moon Corporation last week. They were typically reticent about dealing with a woman, 
but I had your black book and took them to some of the places it recommends. That settled their nerves a bit. We started with dinner at Chez Germain and then cocktails at the Rose Bush. I brought Martin from the board along to make sure no one got fresh, at least not with me. I will admit to experiencing some nervous tension upon approaching the Mermaid Club. I had this terrible fear of being directed to the side door, but I had my best suit on and walked up like I was a regular. The man on the door, Peter, I think, didn't show a hint of surprise at the arrival of a woman by the customer entrance. I did make sure I was at the head of the pack, lest they mistake me for someone's chippy. Peter just smiled, took my name, and sent me up to your usual box. The girls there are absolute delights. It goes without saying that they're much freer than my usual gang, but far from the dizzy dames I was expecting. They were proper wits. One of the St. Moon boys, Harbridge, the accountant, got royally stitched by one of them. The sales director, Clement, got a few razors, but the old boy wasn't bright enough to catch on, so they left him alone. I better tell you this before someone else does, because I'll not have you hearing it from Martin. Not long after we arrived at the club, I could tell our guests were keen to order some dances. The girls were advertising shamelessly, but the furtive glances in my direction told me that the St. Moon boys weren't quite sure how good their manners needed to be in front of me. Not even Martin seemed clear on that point. Not that I blamed them, of course. I was delighted to watch them squirm, but such is not the prerogative of a hostess. So, I did the only decent thing under the circumstances and requested a dance for myself. They needed to see that I meant business, and paying for one of their dances wouldn't quite have signed the dotted line. I told the young woman, who gave the name Pearl, that I would need some guidance. I did so discreetly, not wanting to show my hand. Pearl, clever girl she is, made a small production of reciting the code of conduct for the benefit of the whole box. Gentlemen! She began. This being your first time at the Mermaid Club, I'll go through the rules, just so we can all have a nice evening. Firstly, the preferred way we got to tip the entertainers is buying them a drink. In the menu, there, there's a whole list of drinks for ladies. One of them. Secondly, everyone likes a bit of encouragement. But we mermaids got delicate ears, so watch your language. Lastly, gentlemen, you gotta keep your hands to yourselves, of course. Now she turned to me. You aren't exactly a gentleman, are ya? So, I guess that last one don't apply to you. I won't embarrass you with the details, but in my amateur opinion, mine was the best dance of the night. Cranston, no fear. I've not gone sapphic or anything. In fact, the platonic nature of the dance was part of the fun. The way you can jive someone endlessly, so long as they know you don't mean it. All for that, I walked out in much finer spirits than the gentleman, the hounds having caught the scent of a fox, but found no success in the chase. 
Now, I must show the depth of naivety, because I thought the girls' names all a little too thematically in line. Do they use pseudonyms, or is the Mermaid Club simply adept at locating entertainers with aquatic monikers? At any rate, the St. Moon Boys were hardy fellows the next morning, and we made excellent progress towards finalizing a contract. There are a few clauses they need to clear with their board of directors, but I think we can make concessions, if needs be, for the greater good. If things continue as they are, we'll have operatives inside St. Moon by the end of the year. Good luck and stay safe. Vivian Walker. P.S. Contact the Chamberlain. I mean it. Just before I'm counting sheep, through my window he comes to peace, and with each other we're sympathizing, looking at the happy sweethearts while they sit around and spoon. There's two lonesome people in the whole wide world, that's me and the man in the moon. This episode of Neon Jezebel will continue in just a moment. But first, we want to hear from you. Podcasts are the newest and most exciting way to listen to your favorite audio programs while on the go. But you already knew that. What you may not know is that the success and longevity of a podcast depends on you, our valued listeners. If you've enjoyed this program, we encourage you to write a review of our show. You can do this on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen from. You can also contact us directly. Find us on Instagram at Neon Jezebel Podcast, all one word. Our announcer, Lisa Lemoire, is a continental beauty of the highest order, but you don't have to take my word for it. Find your way to Instagram at Neon Jezebel Podcast to have a look for yourself. While you're there, be sure to follow us to receive updates in a timely fashion. That's at Neon Jezebel Podcast, all one word, on Instagram. And now, we return to Neon Jezebel. Dear Vivian, I think an ambitious mink sash is just the thing. In fact, you should talk to my man Chalk. He knows a girl who does the finest embroidery on all King Charles Island, and it would be a kindness to him, as the two of them have an understanding, and any pretense to visit her would warm the chap's heart. It was a good job selecting the Mermaid Club. Of all the burlesques in the city, they are the most acquainted with female patrons. It's not at all uncommon for couples making an evening of it to pop in before heading back to their hotels. It helps that the girls are discouraged from working after hours. It makes the atmosphere more, as you say, platonic. In future, do steer clear of the princess's court. They really might send you to the employee entrance. I did receive the cane and hood. Gramercy for that. I'm not quite of a mind to join a vigilance committee yet, so the hood is staying in the box. It is nice to have, though. Totemic in some way. Like Roman soldiers carrying effigies of their house gods. Knowing it's what Father wore on his evening patrols inspires one to a certain minimum of courage. Of course, you know it was Mother that got him into it. She and Uncle Arthur joined the vigilance committee as soon as they were old enough. Father didn't don the hood until after Uncle Arthur was killed. I'll admit there is something in me that would like to see that legacy revived. 
father took it over from Uncle Arthur, I could take it over from father. It's a comforting notion, at least in the abstract. However, I don't think I shall consider resurrecting Mr. Smoke until I've found myself a Miss Mirror. All sounds well with St. Moon. They were the first thing to give me pause about this little venture of mine, but I had a now-vindicated faith in your ability to handle them. If we do go into Phase 3 with them, I will certainly need to make a return to public life. Not, of course, as a reflection on your abilities, merely because Phase 3 will be an all-hands matter. Of course, we might all get lucky, and Phase 3 will prove unnecessary. As for my present venture, the good Miss Syme, and we, her protectors, have retired to a family estate near Lake Placid. You're right about the family connection. The clan hails generally from Massachusetts. Dr. Syme, Rosamond's father, purchased this estate in New York during a time when the state was keen to develop its rural outskirts, and good land was on the cheap. The estate now serves as his primary research lab. He funds the whole operation by running a kind of sanitarium for those suffering from extra-dimensional affective disorder, and it is quite the complex. I've only glimpsed parts of it, as Dr. Syme thinks the sight of bodyguards will trouble the patients. Upon further reflection, it occurred to me that I may be known to some of the patients as well. It's just the sort of place one of our set might come to convalesce. It would be more than a little awkward if I were to be identified. From what I've seen, there are a number of bungalows for those patients merely in need of peace, quiet, and maybe an injection or two. There's a larger building further from the road, where the more seriously afflicted are seen to. All of that, though, is well away from where I've been staying. Like most sanitariums, there is a fair bit of secrecy surrounding the place. For the preservation of the delicate balance of the guests, looky-loos are kept at bay by every reasonable means. With any such place, one cannot entirely trust the testimony of former guests, as they are as likely as not to omit any number of details. However, there is a somewhat scandalous set of rumors surrounding this place in particular. In my last letter, I mentioned that much of Rosamond's lecturing revolves around the importance of oxytocin, and methods to increase one's general well-being by getting as much of it into your system as possible. I don't know how far you've gotten by now into Rosamond's book, but one of her chief advisories is to pursue a thoroughly satisfying intimate life. At this juncture, Vivian, I feel I should assure you that what I'm about to say is both supported by Dr. Syme's research and critical to understanding the reputation his retreat has among certain individuals. In Rosamond's lectures, she talks at length about the importance of the intimate crescendo to well-balanced oxytocin levels. Childbirth may deliver extremely high levels of the stuff, but it's not exactly efficient. She has noted that for men, oxytocin is best achieved with a regular paramour. Merely stepping out with a floozy or woman of the night does not produce notable levels of oxytocin release. To this, I can offer some anecdotal support. During the war, well, you know what soldiers are like, and France in particular is encouraging of that kind of behavior. There were a few chaps I knew that had to be dragged from brothels to make morning parade on a regular basis, yet they fared no better when face to face with the pocket than the rest of us. It may shock you to learn that there were semi-permanent paramours among the men. Trench warfare was a terrible thing. Days, sometimes weeks would pass where the only scenery was dirt walls and the clear blue sky. The Hun had machine guns watching our lines day and night, so even popping your head up for a glimpse could earn you a ticket to the pearly gates. 
When one hears of shell shock, one always imagines the unmitigated terror of an active battlefield. And that was the worst of it. However, those trenches afforded only the barest reprieve from the strain, and a week of that unstilled quiet could do as much damage to a man's mind as an hour of heavy combat. Under such conditions, there were more than a few of the doughboys who resorted to finding relief in what became known as the Spartan Method. You know your history, same as I do, so I'm sure you can imagine. At any rate, the more Spartan among us did manage their encounters with dimensional pockets with a touch more grace than the rest. I think it worth noting here that these Spartan activities were confined to the trenches. Once that terrible pressure was lifted, the men went right back to their true red-blooded ways. We may have had one confirmed bachelor in our midst, but for the rest, it was merely part of the war, and they have continued such activities with the same frequency with which they continue bayonet charges. Returning to Rosamond's lectures, women seem to have the advantage when it comes to the intimate release of oxytocin, where men require a regular paramour and get very little benefit from singing to their own accompaniment, women need merely to reach their crescendo, without regard to who is playing the piano. With this in mind, Rosamond has some very frank advice for women on how to secure those high notes for themselves. I will admit that I was of the predisposition that playing one's own piano was the jurisdiction of professionals, but Rosamond recommends it for her entire sex. A secondary benefit, she claims, is that the more intimately acquainted with their own piano they are, the better they can direct accompanists, which makes those high notes all the more attainable. This instruction is the main thing that has scandalized Miss Symes' detractors. Given that she makes such assertions under the pretense of her father's research, there are many who have come to believe that the Syme retreat is little more than a hosting ground for bacchanalia. Many have accused Dr. Syme of creating such an out-of-the-way place so that the very rich and very debauched can engage in pursuits of crescendo at an orchestral level. My time at the retreat has provided no substantiating evidence for any such claims. So if those rumors do reach your ears, know that I am being perfectly chaste in my time here. Lucian and I stay close to Rosamond's cottage. She has her own patience, as it turns out. In the week we've been here, three women of some note have made lengthy visits to be counseled in person, one of whom might certainly have recognized me. Rosamond has also requested that Lucian and I stay out of sight and out of mind as much as possible while she sees her clients. Still, I have had to take measures. I do hope you're sitting down when you read this, Vivian, because my alter ego, the rough and ready Jackson Edgewater, now has a moustache. I know, I know. It's terribly Douglas Fairbanks of me. But it goes farther than a pair of glasses would and it has proven necessary. Of the three clients that Rosamond has hosted in our time here, I have encountered two of them through accidents entirely beyond my control. One of them, as I said, and whom I will not name here, is known to us. She did not recognize me, owing in part to the many years since we last saw each other and to the strangeness of the location. It's much harder to recognize someone when you encounter them in a place you would not expect them to be. I know she did not recognize me because we were alone. I was patrolling the corners of the property, and she came calling after me in the hopes that I had a cigarette. We talked for a while, and she made no sign of recognition whatsoever. I have been using an affected accent with Rosamond for the duration of my employ, and now, with the advent of my soup catcher, nothing is being left to circumstance. 
My identity is firmly hidden. At this juncture, you may worry that your letters have arrived bearing my name. Well, worry not, because Chalk has been posting the letters in new envelopes addressed to Jackson Edgewater. He's got a real gift for espionage, my butler. Now, I mentioned that I had seen two of the three ladies to visit Miss Syme. The third one is a point in this whole matter where you may be of assistance. I know very little about the woman apart from her name, one Miss Della Kane. When she arrived at the house, she came in a car with darkened windows that was directed to the garage rather than the front drive. I observed this from the window of the adjacent staff lodge where Lucian and I are bunked. After the car entered, the garage door closed, then reopened not five minutes later and the car departed. For the thirty or so hours that Miss Kane was scheduled to be in the house, Rosamond informed both Lucian and I that we were to take our meals in the lodge. When Miss Kane left, the same protocol was observed with the car. All of that was enough to stoke my curiosity, but Lucian has stoked my concern. When Rosamond informed us that we would be forbidden from the house, Lucian asked that I excuse them. I did, but I didn't go far, and the walls do little to keep secrets. The two of them had a proper row over the visit. The first thing I gleaned was that Miss Kane is seeing Rosamond as a result of some exposure to a pocket. She evidently has the most acute case of extra-dimensional affective disorder that Rosamond has ever encountered. I can only assume it is not severe enough to warrant Dr. Syme's attention, but Rosamond made it sound just shy of life or death. It is possible that Miss Kane's case is tangential in some way. Perhaps she has a loved one who is being treated by Dr. Syme, but it really did sound like Miss Kane was the real patient. Rosamond's argument was that no one needed her services more than Miss Kane. It was critical that their sessions be undertaken with complete secrecy for reasons that Rosamond herself refused to tell Lucian. It was this very point that Lucian railed against. He regards anything that is so deserving of secrecy as a liability, at least for the time being. There was much made of his needing to keep her safe, and Rosamond's insistence that Miss Kane was harmless. At one point, Lucian referred to Miss Kane as one of your uncle's people, which could mean a great many things. The row went on for some time, and frankly, it sounded much more like a lover's quarrel than a disagreement between employer and employee, which makes me wonder if Lucian might not have some other motives here. He's not generally the type for dissembling, but love changes us in the most unpredictable ways. No surprise, Lucian was tight-lipped about Miss Kane when I asked about her later on, so I wonder if you could do a little digging. I don't know which of the uncles Miss Kane is associated with, nor do I have any hint as to what that association might be. If Benjamin Syme is a member of the OFF, that could be it. However, that would mean Lucian is aware not only of the OFF in general, but in Uncle Benjamin's membership in particular. How he would have come upon any of that information escapes me entirely. If you could do a bit of digging, it would be appreciated. That's all for now. Do remember to speak with Chalk about that sash. It would do him good to have a reason to visit his embroiderer, and I rather expect you'd be setting the new vogue. Yours, Harried and Henpecked, Cranston Walker. P.S. I will write to the Chamberlain. Neon Jezebel is made by Zachary Westbrook. Vivienne Cranston is voiced by Amy Alia. Announcements by me, Lisa Lemoyne. You can find Neon Jezebel on the web at our Instagram, Neon Jezebel Podcast. 
If you enjoyed this program, be sure to rate and review on Apple Podcast or wherever you are listening from. <laughs>